Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're in a series called Cancel Culture. It's a term that our society just kind of knows. It's now in our vernacular, but here's what it means. It means it, it's, it's, that it's withdrawing support or canceling, boycotting an individual or an organization after they've been accused of objectionable behavior. And we've probably seen that all over the place. We tend to think of public figures, of athletes, of politicians, of organizations. And, and really, it's a little bit of like, that's at a distance, that's out there in the public world, but truth is, sometimes that cancel culture kind of mindset sneaks its way into relationships. It might be um, that professor or that teacher that does something, a friend, a family member, you know, maybe they make a post on social media, they support some candidate that you go, oh, how could they possibly support that person? And we begin canceling people. So we would look at someone's behavior and we would say that's objectionable. And because it's objectionable, I feel like the only strength and the only power I have is to withdraw from relationship with them. I'm going to withhold affection, attention. I'm going, to, I'm going to write them off. This is the way we used to say it when I was growing up. Like, that's dead to me. That person is dead to me. When you got really frustrated with Walmart, you would say, Walmart is dead to me. But what we say to others is, you are dead to me because of what you've done that I've experienced as objectionable. And the challenge now is that with social media, we said this last week, that our access to power our access to influence, our access to judgment, it's faster than our access to knowledge and wisdom and relationship. With, with just one thought, I can tweet it out, I can post that link, I can interact with someone on social media faster than it takes for me to actually gain understanding of the nuance of a situation. Have you ever had that happen? where you've reacted in a social media context and then later on you find out more information. And the challenge is this, that before we can finally gain that wisdom, we've already taken an action that's influenced and impacted someone else. And when the truth comes out, it actually affects our credibility and theirs as well. Sometimes, sometimes we cancel people. We say you're dead to me because of something huge. But sometimes it's because of them a misspoken word. Sometimes it's because of a misunderstanding. Or in one special case, a guy that was hanging his hand outside of his car window that got him canceled. NBC San Diego, (laughs) San Diego, I met a new friend from San Diego this morning, reported about a Latino worker who lost his job because of cancel culture. It all started when a picture of a manual Cafferty, who worked for the San Diego Gas and Electric Company, he was in his work truck, and someone took a picture and posted that picture all around Twitter. This was the picture. Do you see anything offensive in this? Because what this person said was that the sign that he was making was actually a sign for white power. Cafferty claims that he was just cracking his knuckles, but soon after the encounter, his supervisor contacts him, tells him that he's suspended, and they launch an investigation, and ultimately, he was fired. He maintains that he was unaware of the hand gesture until the whole controversy started. He says this, he says, I don't know how long it's going to take for me to get over this, 
But to lose your dream job because you were playing with your fingers, that's a hard pill to swallow. Now, Emmanuel Cafferty is is actually Mexican-American, and he comes from a, a family with all sorts of diverse races. He and his family were quick to say that they're against any form of racism. But the man who originally posted the picture on his Twitter since deleted his account, and he said, I may have gotten a little spun up about the interaction and misinterpreted it. He says this, he says, he never intended for Cafferty to lose his job. But isn't that what cancel culture actually brings about? Unintended consequences. It can be something that happened 10 minutes ago, 10 years ago, one moment of foolishness, one moment of sinfulness, and someone loses credibility. They lose access to opportunities. In this case, they lost their job. And ultimately, here's what happens. When that goes from the domain of the public, the public square, and it enters into our relationships, one of the unintended consequences that we can have is that it starts to lead to a culture of disconnection. Where when we start canceling people, we find out that we're rather lonely and that relationships that could have been salvaged, that should have been brought back together, have been destroyed, and it's now discarded friendships standing on the trash heap of cancel culture with no path forward to actually reintegrating, coming back together, that which has been lost. At the end, cancel culture, this is what we said last week as we started, like cancel culture leaves no room for growth, no room for someone to change the direction that they were heading towards. It leaves no room for redemption and it leaves no room for grace. And what we said last week is if we're gonna call ourselves Christ followers, there is something that's bedrock to who we are as Jesus followers. And that is this, that when it comes to our sin, that Jesus came to not cancel us, but he came to cancel sin. That when he had the opportunity and when he had the right to cancel me because of the, like, the disgusting things that are in my heart and in your heart when he could have struck us down. Instead, he came our way to cancel sin in us without canceling us. Now, this is a principle I wanna talk about this weekend that God didn't come to cancel us, but he called, came to come near us. And it's this idea of being reconciled, of being reconciled to someone. And think about when you reconcile a checkbook. Now, Certain generations may or may not experience that here, but when you reconcile a checkbook, you're taking two numbers that don't line up and you're bringing them into alignment, two things that were disconnected and reconnecting them again. This is what, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us, that when we think about these relationships that have been severed and when we think about what God did for us, that he didn't cancel sin, but he canceled Uh, He didn't cancel us, but he canceled sin, that he reconciled us to be with him, that the same way that he did that with us, we should do that with other people. This is how the apostle Paul said this. He said this in Philippians 2. He said, it's coming up, there it is. Um, Next one, please, there you go, Eric. No, 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 Philippians 2, we'll get there. There it is, yay, all right. Have this attitude in yourselves, which uh, was also in Christ Jesus. In your relationships, 
the NASB talks about. Have this same sort of connection with other people. The same way that Jesus reconciled you, you would seek to reconcile with others. Now, here's the thing. If you're not a Christ follower, like, you have, you don't, this, is, this is something that you don't have to do. Who am I? I don't have authority over you. But if you're someone who would call yourself a Jesus follower, that you would get up in the morning and say, to the best of my ability, I want to follow after him. For us, this isn't something that's optional. This is something that is expected for us, that in our relationships, we would have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Because reconciliation is the operative noun for all those of us who have a Christian faith. Reconciliation, here's what it means. It means to restore a relationship. It means to restore a relationship. And the story of redemption, the story of our salvation, guys, is the story of our relationship with God coming back together. It's a story of reconciliation, that he would reconcile members of this rebel race that were just running away from him. Now here's, here's the challenge. When we think about someone that's offended us, someone that's done something wrong to us, maybe we can even accept this fundamental truth that I would step in to forgive them. Right? We would say, I'm gonna forgive them. But here's the kicker. Your heavenly father wasn't content to simply forgive you. Forgiveness, and this is where we get tripped up. Forgiveness is only half of the equation because I can forgive you from a distance but reconciliation man I I can forgive you from a distance and I can never make an attempt to reconcile with you reconciliation is the win reconciliation is the win in our relationship with God it's our it's our win in our relationship with others and according to Jesus those two things are connected with one another. So if that's what God's demonstrated towards us, and that's what we're supposed to demonstrate towards others, here's the big takeaway this weekend. And if you forget everything else, right, if you zone out after this, I want you to get this one point, that when it comes to our broken relationships, when it comes to someone who's offended me, or there's this rift between us, our goal is to not get back at somebody. Our goal is to get back to them. Because getting back at somebody, that's the way of the world. That's human nature. That's called revenge, but getting back to them, that's God's nature. Because he didn't try to get back at me. No, he came to get back to me. And if we're gonna live out having the mindset of Christ, it means that we would say, when this person, when I've like experienced this rift with them, I'm not gonna try to get back at them. I'm going to do everything I can to get back to them. Now, we can clap when we hear that God's reconciled us and we can say this is wonderful and this is great, but when the rubber meets the road and someone has offended your child, when someone's insulted your spouse, when they've attacked you, when they've said something that's untrue about you, how often and how do we react to that as Christians? What's your reaction when you've been wronged? turns out that canceling, removing relationship, that's not the only option that's available for us. In fact, it's not the first option. 
It's not the second or even third option. Instead, what Jesus does is he says, if you're gonna live out my heart, the heart and the mind of God, there's actually a step-by-step beginner's guide for how you take a relationship that's been rifted and torn apart and how you put it back together again, a recipe for reconciliation. And we're gonna walk through that in just a moment, but here's what I've experienced, and I've been around people who would call themselves Christ followers for, their, for much of their life. I've been around church my entire life, and what we're about to read together, we'll all sit there and we'll nod our heads and we'll say, yes, that sounds like a great idea, and we'll even write that into how we're gonna operate into our Christian community and our life groups, and we'll read that in our guardrails. But so often, when conflicts, when these tears, when these rifts occur, we fail to exercise what Jesus tells us. Now normally what I'll do is we just hop in a passage and I start to like, like look at one phrase at a time and just talk it through. But I wanna do this just a little differently this weekend. So I wanna ask that we would read this passage together and then I'll break it down. So there's a Bible underneath many of your seats. It's orange. If you don't have a Bible, we ask you just to take this one. It's our gift to you. And turn in, in that Bible to page 671. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 18 if you have your own Bible and wanna turn on your own Bible. And I wanna read this together, but since it's God's word, can we stand to honor God's word and read this together? It'll also be on the screen. This is out of the NIV. Ready, read. Oh, it's coming. Is it not there, Eric? Oh, that's fun. All right, then you really do need your orange Bibles. How about that? Now you're actually gonna have to do it. Anyone need a Bible that doesn't have one? All right, page 671, Matthew 18, verses 12 through 18 is where we're going to be. Let's read that together. Ready? Read. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You can be seated, but keep your Bibles open because we're gonna work through that passage together. Now, if you grew up in a church environment, like we even sing a song about that, leaves the 99, like this story, this picture of a shepherd that would leave the 99 to go after the one. And usually we think about that in terms of telling someone who doesn't know anything about faith in Christ, what he's done for you. We think of it in terms of evangelism. But what Jesus is actually talking about, he says right before that passage, he says there's going to come stumbling blocks in this world. There's going to be times when you experience relational rifts. He says, but woe to the person that stumbling blocks come through them. And then he says, this is the heart and the mind of God, that there is a shepherd that when one of those sheep starts to wander off because there's been this stumbling block that's occurred, this thing that's happened, and they've started to wander off 
the heart and the mind of the shepherd is that you would go after them and you would bring them back. You'd say, you're heading into dangerous territory. You're out on your own. You're not gonna survive. You had faith, but it's starting to crumble. You are operating as if God was, going to, was calling the shots in your life, but you're starting to deviate from that. He would say, this is, this is what the heart and the mind of God is, that you would go and you would bring that person back that you would care about them. You're not trying to get back at them. You're not trying to go and like blast them out and what a stupid sheep you are. No, no, no. Like I love you. Don't wander off. You would try to get back to them, not get back at them. And then what Jesus does is he lays out this illustration of how this plays out. A three-step process for how you get back to somebody rather than get back at them. The same way that a shepherd would when, someone, when a sheep wanders off. And then he lays out this process. So imagine this for just a moment. You, you and I, we have kids, and those kids are on a soccer team together, and we go to a soccer game on the weekend, and we're all into the game, and we're cheering for our kids, and then all of a sudden, the ref makes some boneheaded call, and I'm there, and I'm watching, and I get angry and upset about that. Right, and I'm starting to yell at the ref, and I'm like, man, I can't believe you. you're so blind as a bat, and I start cussing them out, and I'm throwing my chair around, and I'm just losing my beans at this, at this ref. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there, and you're thinking, man, this guy is part of my church, and I just told this other parent about how ch- great our church is, and how great, you know, our pastor's so good looking, you need to come to church and be a part of this. And, and you're like, this guy's embarrassing me. This guy's embarrassing, like, this is not... This is not what it means to be a Christ follower. Jesus says when that happens, there's some step-by-step instructions for what you would do. He says, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, step one, step one is this, that you go and you point out their fault just between the two of you. Now notice what he says. He says, if they have sinned. Not if they wore a shirt that you thought was ugly, not if they are annoying you, not if it's an issue of politics or preferences, not that. He says, this is someone who has knowingly, like willfully sinned, maybe unknowingly sinned. They just didn't even know any better. They, they, they don't even see it. He says, he says, if they've sinned, now it's interesting, some of, some of the manuscripts, and you might even have an asterisk and like a footnote, it says that they've sinned, against, they've sinned against you. They didn't just do something sinful in general, but it's, it's got, you're involved in that, and now there's this rift between you, and it needs to be reconciled. And I actually think that's an interesting point, because, you know, we can quickly say, I'm gonna pick up everyone's offense and I'm gonna be that watchdog for Jesus and I'm gonna carry someone else's offenses. Proverbs 26, 17 says this, says only a fool picks up an offense that's not their own. So we would look at that, we would say, I, I don't know that I wanna be that person that's easily ticked off about just about everything. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says this, he says that if we love someone, we're not easily angered, we're not easily provoked. So we're not going to pick a fight with them because, you know, they took our parking spot. This is a a sin issue against you. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says, when someone's done that, when there's this rift between you, the first thing that you do, the first thing that you do before anything else is you get on Instagram and you tell everyone what a terrible person they are. No, no, that's not 
not what he says. Okay, I, don't, I know what it is you do. The first thing you do is you go and you find a group of friends and you can say, I can't believe what, did you see what Scott, that was the worst thing ever. He just lost his beans over that. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, you, you go and you email them or you message them on Facebook. You don't even direct message them. He doesn't say that you go and you text them. He says you go to them face to face. You talk with them. Now, I, I, I know I've said this before, but I just want to say it again. Face to face is so much better than texting someone because you know this. There is so much that's lost when all you have are those characters on the screen. So much nuance of meaning that gets lost in that. So much of tone, the expression in your eyes, how you're leaning into relationship rather than away from. And when you try to resolve conflict over text, it almost always goes south. And I've seen this happen time and time and time and time and time and time again in Christian community. And so I've created a rule for me, for my family, for my staff that when you're involved in, in something and the moment there feels like there's something that's off, like there's just like a little twinge, maybe there was some hurt there, I'm not sure. The first thing you do is you go and you meet with that person. You talk with them face to face so that you can value the relationship. And that's my ask, like I'm begging you because Many times I've been a part of like picking up the pieces from text messages that went sideways, from people that didn't understand the tone and the true heart, from people who then text and it bops around to other people and before you know it, this thing is just wildfire and it is destructive and it is divisive and it is ugly and so my ask, beloved, is that when there's a twinge of anything that you, you get a hold of them and you meet with them face to face and if if you can't do it face to face, you at least do it on the phone so that you can hear the voice tone behind it. It's such a big deal. And the goal, the goal, Jesus would say, you talk with them, and the goal is not to get back at them. The goal is to get back to them. You value relationship, and so what you would do is you would say, hey Scott, I don't think that that's the person that you want to be because what I saw was someone who completely lost self-control. And, and God's word says that the fruit of the spirit is self-control. You are being led by your flesh. You just tarnished your reputation. You tarnished our church's reputation. You tarnished the reputation of Jesus. I don't think that's the kind of person that you want to be. Right? You would have that question with me and the goal is always to bring them back, to shepherd them, to bring them back from error. Hey, you're heading in a direction that if you keep losing your beans like that, you're gonna lose a lot more than your camp chair. And I'm urging you to not do that. I love you. And so Galatians 6 when says, it says when someone's like in sin, when they're caught in sin, and it's not always, aha, like I caught you sin. It, it's like, hey, you're ensnared by this. You may not even see this. That our goal would be to restore them gently to get back to them, not get back at them. Jesus says step number one, step number one is so simple, so simple, but often we overlook it. It's just to go talk with them. But you might be thinking, and it would be rational, why should I go back to them? Aren't they the one that sinned against me in the first place? I mean, it's their fault. They're the one that did that. I mean, Scott was the one that chucked the chair. Why should I have to go to them? I mean, shouldn't, 
shouldn't they be the one that comes to me? Maybe. Maybe, but chances are it's something in their life that because they just have blind spots, maybe because of the way they grew up and the way that they saw their parents handle conflict, you know, they, they just, that's just the way they, maybe they don't even see it. This is such a huge deal. We go to them, listen, because Jesus, he didn't do anything wrong. In our relationship with God, he didn't do anything wrong, and yet he came our way first. Jesus is saying this. He's saying that reconciliation begins with us regardless of who created the fuss. That's a little sing-songy and cute, but it, maybe it's helpful that reconciliation begins with us regardless of who created the fuss. Even if, even if it's their fault, even if it's 100% their fault, even if they're the ones that walked away, if there's gonna be hope for reconciliation, then it begins with us. Even when we didn't do wrong, we're the ones who initiate reconciliation, again, because Jesus did that with us. He walked our way even when he didn't create the mess. And this is so hard because there's gonna be those times when you just feel like raising your hand and you're saying, but you don't know my story. You don't know what he or she said to me. You don't know what they said to my child. This is not fair. This, it's a devastating story. And you might, you might be right. And you might think, you know, I get a pass from this. And so you would sit there and you'd cross your arms and you'd say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna forgive them because I'm told I have to forgive them. But I'm gonna wait for them. I'm gonna wait for them to come in my direction. I'll forgive them. But I don't know about moving in their direction towards the relationship that, we, that they broke. But listen, when we do that, when we say, I'm gonna wait on them, that's a form, and this is so subtle, that's a form of getting back at them and not getting back to them, which, which means that we're actually maybe more like them than we would care to admit. Because you don't wanna get back at, you wanna get back to. Jesus says, you go one-to-one, -one, you come and say, hey, this is the issue, with gentleness to restore them he says this, he says, if, if they listen to you, if they've heard that, if they've softened their heart, you have won them over. They've come in brokenness, they've owned their odor, they've said, I don't, you know what, I don't wanna be that mad soccer dad chucking his camp chairs, that's not what I wanna do. I'm gonna turn in the other direction. And there's real godly sorrow, there's real brokenness. He says the situation doesn't have to go any further than that. It's taken care of. You've won them over. You've kept them from walking away. Jesus, Jesus would look at that and he would say, that's part of what it means to chase after the one that wandered off. You're not, you're not running after them. You're not looking to blast them. You're not looking to scold them. You're looking to bring them back. That's step one. And then he says this. That's if, you, if they've listened, if they've softened their heart, you've won them over, but... If they don't listen, in verse 16, if they will not listen, he says, take one or two others along that it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You've tried step one, you've come to me and you said, Scott, hey man, when you cussed out at that ref, that was, that was not appropriate. And I respond and I say, well, who are you to tell me what to do? I mean, come on, everyone gets mad, and you know, who is without the sin? Cast the first stone, and I just shrug it off. Jesus would say, hey, the next step 
is to take someone with you, to bring two or three witnesses, he actually says. And it's fascinating because he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 19. It stated that someone couldn't be convicted of a crime without two or three witnesses. One wasn't enough. In fact, that's actually quoted all throughout the New Testament. Don't entertain accusations against elders without two or three witnesses. With, and here's what, here's what he's getting at. Is this something that's verifiable? Or have you just made it up? Is this something that's actual? Is it have truth to it? Or is it something that you've just carried an offense that might be out of alignment? And what that does is it invites another party to be a part of that conversation to help protect the one being accused as well as the, the one bringing, hey, this is the offense that's happening. That third party steps in. They help verify. They help speak truth to both parties. Now, listen, I've had times where I've needed to call someone else in because I've had to say, hey, we're having this conflict and we can't figure this out. We don't know the pathway forward. There is tremendous wisdom in the abundance of counselors. And when something is going wrong, oh, I'm gonna work at this. There you go, maybe I can make it stop altogether. I apologize, I'm having a costume malfunction here. We'll see if that helps. That when we bring someone else into it, it's, it's really powerful. You can navigate sticky situations with quite a bit more grace. He says, you bring two or three people, verse 17, but if they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So if step two didn't go well and they've not softened their heart, their heart is hard, and, and this isn't about them saying, hey, this is hard. It's about them saying, I am unwilling I will not listen to you. They have a hard heart. They're unwilling to own their odor. Jesus, Jesus says you take it up to the next level. You bring it to the church, he says. Now this is actually fascinating to me. Jesus uses the word ecclesia, ecclesia. Now what's interesting is at that time, the church like, like this didn't exist. It would eventually look like this, but it didn't at that time. So what was Jesus referring to? Well, the word ecclesia in the Old Testament was also used to describe a gathering, kind of like the village, the, the townspersons, the village people, not the village people, that's not it. They'd come together, um, and, and they would kind of bring a concern before, you know, like the town council kind of thing. That's what the ecclesia meant then. Now it means a gathering of all the Christ followers, so what, is, what does he mean? You know, when you've gone through those steps and there's been this offense, is it, is it a matter of like there's this offense with another person that calls themselves a brother or sister in Christ and so they haven't listened to you and so now do I get to take it to the town council of Brunswick or is it the church? What's the domain for that? Actually, actually, Scripture helps us interpret Scripture, and the Apostle Paul gives an example of this playing out in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, he's writing to this Corinthian church, and he says to them, hey, something's happening in your mix that is terrible. He says, there's a, there's a man in your midst, and he's sleeping with his father's wife. Not, I don't think it's his mom. I think it would be like his stepmom, Right? And he says, even the pagans think that's gross. And yet the church is proud about it. 
guys, this is wrong, he says. He confronts them. And then, then he writes this in 1 Corinthians 5. It's going to be on the screen. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, if you're going to stay away from anyone who does sin, you can't even be in the world at all. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. So they're talking about someone who is a part of the body of Christ. They would call themselves a brother or sister and they're an immoral person, a covetous uh, an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, a swindler. He says not to eat with such as one of those. And he's not talking, hey, you have to be perfect. He's saying someone who is willfully disobeying what God's told us is, a, is like a good way of living. And they're saying, I don't care what you have to tell me and you can't, t-. like that kind of hard, rebellious heart is what he's talking about. He goes on, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, then he says this, he says, remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. And he's clearly talking about the church and the gathering of the church. Now this is actually really, really helpful for us because when we think about the world around us and when someone does something like you look at it and say, man, that's sinful, that's off, that's just morally not okay, and they're in the world around us, Paul would say, we don't, have, we don't have this position of standing in judgment for someone who's never come into agreement with letting their life being guided and directed by Jesus Christ. They've never made that decision. He is not their Lord. Like, that's not our position to judge them. God will deal with that. But then he says this. He says it's our job to judge those who are within the church. And I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, who, who am I to judge? According to Paul, we're not to judge those outside the church, but we are to judge. We are to say, hey, this is or isn't an alignment with God's word for those who would call themselves Christians. That we are to look at their life and say, hey, you know what? There is a fruit, a fruitfulness of following after Jesus and it means you're becoming more like Jesus and not less and it doesn't mean perfection but it means direction and this is a person that's clearly walking towards or not walking towards a relationship with God. He says we are supposed to with humility and sobriety and gentleness but also with firmness. There is a place for for calling that out. He says those who are outside God judges but he says remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. You know what that sounds like? Kind of sounds like canceling them, doesn't that? It might surprise you, but you're not hearing me say there's never, ever, 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 ever a time where you shouldn't remove someone from a relationship with you. Because that's not what Scripture says. But it's not the first option. And it's not the second option or even the third option. It's kind of the last resort. It's the last resort when you would say, I have gone towards this person and they won't soften, they won't won't repent, they have a hard, rebellious heart and I have tried and I've done everything that I can do and they won't repent. That leads me to kind of my last uh, takeaway is this. 
is that reconciliation isn't guaranteed. Jesus doesn't say, hey, this will always turn out 100% awesome. And if you just follow these steps, you can have a guaranteed result of reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't guaranteed. In fact, I would argue that reconciliation ultimately isn't the goal, that the goal is to live without regrets. And Christ would say, if, if, if you're gonna have the heart and the mind of, of God with this, that you, you can live without regrets, knowing that you, you've done everything that I've asked you to do to go towards that person, to get back to them, rather than to get back at them. Paul says this, He says in Romans 12, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And then this is so helpful, guys. Just bury this down. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, because there's gonna be some relationships that they just pull away, and you're doing everything you can, and it's as far as it depends on you. He says, you can can rest at night You can live without regrets even when there's not reconciliation because you've done everything you can to chase after this person. I've done my part and I can live without regrets. Now, then Jesus says, when you've done that, when you've done all of that, he says you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which means in that context is is they're not a part of that family of faith. But if that feels harsh to you, we're well reminded to consider how Jesus treated the pagans and the tax collectors. Because he didn't, he actually treated them better than he treated the self-righteous Pharisees, didn't he? Jesus went after the pagans and the tax collectors. He treated them with love and with respect. Treated them as image bearers of God. So even if someone ends up in that position where you would say, I'm gonna remove them from relationship, that's never a license to be evil towards them or to get back at them. Our posture is always to reconcile because that's what God did with us. Guys, this this is sober. What Jesus described is what sometimes you might hear called church discipline much like an athlete would discipline their body to be stronger, to be more effective. In the church, it's about like disciplining, making this body stronger, more effective, because we would look at someone who says, I want my life to be directed and guided by Christ according to his principles, and if someone has a hard heart, man, that's not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. They're, they're, they're actually in the other direction. It's sober, but I, can I tell you, can I tell you that I've, that I've been a part of a, a number of faith communities and I've seen this played out and this is how I see it usually happen in one of two ways. If someone has made a decision to walk away from 
from God. Maybe they say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna do this business deal and I don't care if it's shady, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do because my business is more important. Or they'll say, hey, I'm gonna leave my spouse because they're just making me miserable and this isn't a biblical divorce but I'm just gonna go do what I wanna do and who cares what you have to say about that. That, that when that kind of rebellious heart and attitude is there, most of the time people disconnect well before you can ever have conversation and they just walk away. And it's heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking. But the other thing that happens is most often in the church when someone offends us, most often we just cancel them. We just cut it off. We never attend to it, we never pursue after them and we would say they've wronged me and I'm hurt but it's okay because I'm gonna forgive them but I'm not gonna reconcile with them. And I have sat through countless life groups where we would read and we would say, we're going to resolve to do everything we can to handle conflict in a biblical way. And then the moment something happens where you're offended, I'm gonna cancel them. And they're dead to me. And it absolutely breaks your pastor's heart. When I see brothers and sisters who say, I will follow after God until the moment it becomes hard. And then they're not willing to have those one-on-one conversations. they, they talk with someone else. They don't follow what Jesus has asked us to do. And we revert to the ways of the world. And I think the enemy just wins when the church does that. In fact, I imagine that if you have hurt from the church somehow, if you'd look back and you'd say, I can't believe this is the way these people acted, it's probably because someone didn't follow what Jesus told us to follow here. This step-by-step beginner's guide to reconciling these broken relationships. There's so much at stake, which is why, which is why I just wanna summarize the things that we've talked about, but this is what we have to resolve to do, is point number one, that I will not get back at, I will get back to. I will not get back at them. If they've hurt me, I'm not gonna say, how uncomfortable can I make them be? I want them to feel pain just the way. No, that's, that's the ways of the world. I will not get back at, I will get back to my goal. That's my goal, and so I'm gonna resolve that I'm gonna do that. Number two, reconciliation begins with us regardless of who created the fuss. I don't own their sin, only they can own their sin, but I'm gonna take the first step in their direction because that's what God did with me. And this is just a beginner's guide, and and here's the thing, there's a lot of nuance involved in certain Things And I want you to hear the heart of your pastor right now because there's an asterisk here. There are some people that are going to have experienced some sort of abuse, some sort of assault that's criminal in nature. I would not recommend that you go directly to that person to confront them. I would recommend you go see a professional that can help you work towards healing and maybe reconciliation can happen because that person needs to be confronted over their sin. But I would not recommend that you be the one that goes to do that. That kind of assault, that kind of abuse is never okay inside or outside of the church. And, And this is a complex statement here. But justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation, they are distinct. They are distinct, but they are not mutually exclusive. And you you can work towards 
reconciliation at the right time with the right kind of help for those kinds of like, like assaults and abuses that happened. And justice can also happen. That's clear in God's word that the courts are there to do what the courts need to do. And we can work towards reconciliation and we can even choose to forgive them. There may not ever be trust. Maybe by God's strength there will be some sort of reconciliation that happens. But those things are distinct but not mutually exclusive. But for normal situations, and unfortunately that hap- those sorts of situations happen uh, enough in churches even our size, but for normal situations where there's not some sort of abuse, where there's not some sort of assault taking place, reconciliation begins with us regardless of who created the fuss. And because, listen, we can only control us. We can't control them. We're gonna take the first step. Third, reconciliation isn't the goal, but living without regrets is. As far as it depends on me, I'm gonna live at peace with everyone. And then last, removal is the last but necessary resort. When all else fails, and I've gone to the person, and I've done everything I can within my ability, it is wise to put up boundaries. Of, I can't entrust myself to you. Like, it is wise to do that. And that's what Jesus would ask us to do as well. Removing them, though, is not the first or the second or the third option. It's the final option when we can't get back to them. So here's the question I want to ask you, just three questions that maybe you can discuss on the way home if it's the right environment for you, maybe even life group later today or later this week. Three things that maybe to consider here as we close up and then we'll just respond in worship together kind of a consecration song together. But question number one, how did your parents handle confrontation? Because chances are the way that you handle confrontation now may have something to do with how you were raised. How did your parents handle confrontation and how do you handle it today? Number two, what is your emotional reaction to the notion that reconciliation begins with you? Even if you're not the one that is responsible for that conflict. And number, number three, Why is it so hard to talk with someone who has wronged us? What causes fear or anxiety? And maybe if we're ready to answer some of those questions, we can take some steps to get back to someone rather than get back at them. Can I pray for you? And then let's respond together in worship. God, there was much spoken about here today that feels like it's uh, just kind of a tutorial on how to do this stuff. And we want to get it right, God. We want to honor you. We want to be reconcilers for your kingdom. God, help us in these areas that are really challenging and hard and need wisdom. But God, you give it to us. You say that when we ask you for it and we believe without doubt that you don't condemn us for when we say, hey, this is hard and I don't know what to do. You say you'll give us wisdom. So we ask for that. God, for relationships that are Uh, fraying and for relationships that are severed. Um, God, give us the courage to step into the challenging things. God, would you use us to be reconcilers for your kingdom? God, we love you. We praise you. Would we consecrate ourselves to you? God, would we say that in the big and the small things in our lives, God, that we want you to be magnified, that we want you to be glorified, uh, that that we want to be kingdom people that seek and save after those who are Um, who are lost and who have wandered away. God, would you use us in that way, we would pray. In Christ's name, amen.